Well, we continue round up our four-week vision series this year as we have been looking at that phrase from Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him. That's really, uh, it's Paul's summary statement for his ministry in Colossians 1.28. Um, we will then be jumping next week, getting back into an expository series through the book of Colossians, uh, as we'll go through Colossians in the spring, and then go through First Peter uh, after that, and then in the summer we'll take a break, go through some of the Psalms, and that'll get us through the, the rest of the year. And that's typically what we do here at the Grove. Um, we believe that the Bible is God's actual word to us. And so we want to preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. Um, we just want to, in essence, hold a microphone up to God. Let Him speak to us. And there are times, though, we'll step away from that and have a short series that's more topical in nature, wanting to make sure we're grounded in God's Word, um, which is what we've been doing here these last four weeks. And I love, I was talking to somebody in our church, and they came up to me last week and were like, when are we getting back in the Bible? Um, and a couple things. Um, one, the first thing that struck me is I love, I just love, and I, I, um, I love being at a church where people are hungry for God's word. Um, so that's just a tremendous thing to hear. Um, but also next week is the answer. We'll be getting back into Colossians. But I think that these, I think that series like these, or sermons like these are important. Just that we can step back and be able to say, uh, here is a church, what, here's what we're focusing on. Why we're focusing on it. What we're moving towards. Some of the things that are starting. So that we can go together. Uh, rather than simply, here's what maybe elders or staff are going to be doing. You guys just kind of keep up. We want to bring all of us on at the very beginning. And say this year, here are things that we're starting. As we're looking at our mission strategy, looking to focus on an area there in the Middle East, in Turkey. Why it is we're doing that and the steps we're taking this year. Um, wanting to see our evangelism raised here as we reach our neighbors and proclaim Jesus to them. Wanting to see churches planted um, from this church. And then today looking at how we proclaim him by raising up pastors. What are we doing here to raise up pastors and send them out? And if my hope is if you're here for any amount of time, you will see this. And so our hope in a sermon like this is that we can lay out, um, as a leadership here, why are we committing our time to do this? Why are we starting something like a residency program, which we'll talk about later? But why, do, why do I give a good portion of my time every week to pouring into other men and raising them up for our church and other churches? I want to answer that question uh, today. How do we see the proclamation of Jesus through raising up pastors? Is that what we need to be giving our time towards? We've seen the mission. The mission is the same at every church. We're here to make disciples of all nations. That's the mission of the church. The scope of that mission, the way it extends, again, is to the ends of the earth, to all nations. That's the way in which we want to go. The means to accomplish that mission is through his church, the local church. That's kind of what we've laid out so far. Um, so, should we focus, what should we focus on for our next step to help this mission move forward? We want to make disciples. That's great. We want to reach the nations, absolutely. We want to see new churches started and existing churches get healthier, absolutely. But how do we do that? To answer that question, uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at an apostle's letters. I want to look at our master's plan. And then I want to ask how we can imitate them. That's really our outline this morning. Those are three questions I want us to ask. What did Paul write? How did Jesus live? And how can we imitate them? That's kind of where we'll be going this morning. What did Paul write? How did Jesus live? And how can we imitate them as we look to proclaim him? So we're a young church. We celebrated four years as a church in September. 
um, by God's grace. I am a young pastor. I know I have a beard and I have a blazer on. Don't be confused. I'm a young pastor. Right? What should we focus on then? What should we be doing as a church? Well, to answer that for me practically, one of the things that I'll do is I'll just go to the New Testament because there are letters written by Paul to young churches and young pastors. And you've got three books in particular that are called the Pastoral Epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, where Paul's writing to younger pastors that are in these churches as Paul's getting ready to pass the baton on to these young men, young pastors and young churches. So I'm just like, oh, that's a letter written specifically to us. It's helpful for any church at any age, but especially as a young church and a young pastor, where should we look to? And so I want to sit at the feet of the greatest missionary, the greatest church planter in history, the Apostle Paul. Because he's written some about what churches should focus on. What should we be giving our attention to? He wrote these letters to young pastors and young churches to answer questions like what we're asking. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to step back and look around at business practices or new marketing strategies to go, okay, what do we need to be doing as a church and focusing to be able to figure out the silver bullet for what the church for 2,000 years had missed. No, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So let's go and sit at his feet, at his revealed word to see, okay, what should we be looking at? And what has he said there to help make sure that a church continues to proclaim him? Or in the words of Paul to Timothy, to make sure that a church guards this good deposit. How do we do that? Well, Paul writes to Titus. If you've got your Bibles, we'll be flipping around to a couple places here at the beginning. Um, Paul writes to Titus in the New Testament. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip to Titus 1. A uh, fun trick I learned a little while ago is that all the books in the New Testament that start with T are back to back to back. And they're also in alphabetical order. So Timothy, T-I-M, comes before Titus, T-I-T-U-S. So Timothy is first. Well, which Timothy comes first? God helps us. First Timothy comes first, and then second Timothy. Uh, and so there's a fun trick for you. Uh, so Titus 1, there in the New Testament, uh, verse 5. Paul's writing to this young pastor in Crete. And he's given direction here in verse 5. And I want us to see particularly what he's told them. Look at verse 5. He says this, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and, as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. Now, he goes on then in, there in Titus 1 to give the qualifications for an elder, similar to the list in 1 Timothy 3. And as Paul's doing this, notice that he says not simply um, to go and find these great men, but to, to actually appoint them, to raise them up from among you. To appoint these elders that were in every town. To raise them up. And then he gives the qualifications for what those elders should look like. And if you look at the qualifications, one of the things that's strikingly interesting is they're not competency based. They're not based on skill or giftedness. 95% of it is based on character. Are they like Jesus? There is a couple things. They shouldn't be a new convert. They must be able to teach God's word. But apart from that, you see self-controlled, righteous, sensible, loving what's good, hospitable. Those are some of the qualifications. So he goes into them what they are to look like. But he says, Titus, I told you to set right what was in order. Here's one of the things that you should be focusing on as a young pastor and a young church is finding men, raising them up, and then appointing these elders in these towns, within these churches. This is something, Titus, that you should give your time to, that you should focus on. 
And we see that these words elder and pastor in the New Testament are used interchangeably. So you'll see elders at the grove or pastors at the grove. Those are the same words as we understand them in the New Testament. Uh, the word overseer or bishop also seems to be the same word. Um, they're all used together in 1 Peter 5. Peter used them interchangeably. So bishop, pastor, elder, all the same word describing the same office. So if you want to call me Caleb, that's wonderful. If you want to call me Pastor Caleb, that's fine. If you want to call me Bishop Caleb, I also think that that's acceptable by New Testament standards. Our brother Caleb, we are brothers in Christ. The one thing you cannot call me is Father Caleb because you have one father and I'm not him. Um, we are brothers that is, and sisters. That is our relationship. And so as Paul here is writing, talking to appoint elders in every town, he's talking about the need to appoint pastors, raising them up. We understand this both to be those pastors that receive financial compensation and those that are lay elders, pastors as well. We see both uh, in the New Testament. So it's the same here. You know, our model here is that the, this church is led by a plurality of elders. We have three, myself, Jim Pickering, and Abel Rivera. Um, Jim and Abel are both lay elders, but that does not give them any diminished authority. When we sit around that table, I am one of the elders. I'm one of the pastors. So I introduce myself that way every week. There's no kind of extra uh, anointing or extra kind of authority that I have over them. We are uh, pastors together, elders together. So Paul's writing to Titus, this young pastor in a young church, and notice what he told him to give his time to, to set right what was left undone and directed Titus to give his time to raising up and appointing elders in every town. Or was this one off to Titus though? Uh, to answer that, just flip back a couple pages to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, the book right before that, in 2 Timothy 2, and Rod read it earlier in that section. I want to look especially at verse 2. This is Paul's final letter that we have, just before he was killed. And so this is, and that Paul knows he's also about to be killed, as we see at the end of this letter. So these are his final words that we have written from Paul. So Paul's going to put, you know, these are the last message from Paul. He's going to put the most important things here to make sure that this continues. He's writing to the disciple that he has poured into the most. He's seen Timothy, had poured into Timothy since Timothy was a teenager. We see back in Acts 16. And now he's seen Timothy as this pastor in Ephesus. And he's now handing this baton to his young protege. And what does he tell Timothy to focus on in verse 2? He says, listen, Timothy, what you have heard from me. In the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And he continues to give these different images for pastoral ministry of an athlete, a soldier, a farmer. But again, notice what he says to do. Timothy, find faithful men, commit to pour into them, and in their faithfulness will go and do the same afterwards. Focus part of your time. Not all of it, but certainly part of it on finding faithful men, raising them up, and sending them out. A young pastor to young church. And so when I look at what Paul wrote in these apostles' letters, and see ourselves as a young church, see myself as a young pastor, I want to receive that same counsel to go, okay, Paul, we want to be doing the same thing. We want to be raising up faithful men and sending them out. We want to be able to appoint elders here and starting other churches to send them out as well. We want to commit to that kind of a lifestyle based on what Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote. Well, that's not all we have in the Bible. If, if it's all we would need, but it's not all we have. We also look at Jesus himself. If you look at the way in which Jesus lived, and we ask, how did Jesus live? What did he do? I asked the question, what was Jesus' mission? 
Why did he come? And there's a number of ways to answer that, but in, in essence, one of the ways that Jesus described it is to seek and save the lost, to redeem his people. Now, who are his people? Were they hyper-focused there in Jerusalem? No, they were spread around the world. And not just around the world in the first century, but around the world and throughout time. Jesus' mission was global and spanned generations. It was a huge mission to come and seek and save the lost. And what then did he choose to do in the 33 years of life that he had? 30 years seemed to be relatively quiet. And then three years he had a public ministry. Okay, in those three years, Jesus, you could have gotten started sooner, but okay, fine. Three years, let's see what you did. Surely, surely he went, okay, I've got to make a big impact here. Let me get the biggest crowds I can get. Let me get the biggest show that I can get. The biggest things that will draw people in and make sure that this message gets out to as many people as possible. That's a good heart. It's often how we think. I think humans have always thought like this. I think particularly we like to think like this in the West as well. We want something big. We think the biggest impact we can make is when it's big, it's large, it's loud, and it's immediate. And then something we do immediately spawns something else and so on and so forth. And we have these huge conferences that are not bad. I go to them. I love them. But we have these huge conferences. And I think that there's an impulse that maybe we feel like that's the way in which we'll reach the world. It's through these big events. Through bigness. Jesus could have just gone to one of the evangelistic rallies in the 1900s. He could have just gone to one of these conferences that shows up where there's tens of thousands of young adults and college students. He could have seen the impact that he could have made. Because Jesus didn't do those things, did he? In fact, with what we saw last week, often when those crowds came, Jesus would say something to intentionally cause them to leave. So then he's left at the end of John 6, and the disciples are like, Jesus, you had a crowd. They wanted to make you king. And you said weird stuff, and now they're all gone. What are we going to do? And Jesus is like, well, you can leave too. And they, they say, well, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. And he continued to whittle, whittle back down to this group. This group of 12 men that Jesus had selected. And three years he poured his time into. There were other disciples as well around him. But we see an emphasis in the gospel on these 12. For three years Jesus then poured into these 12. He, caused, he would have them also doing ministry alongside him. Teaching them as they went. Observing him as he would go. And after three years then he sends them out. Jesus' method to reach the world, his plan to reach the world, was choosing 12 men, slowly, intentionally, and over time, pouring into them, and then telling them to go and do the same. Jesus' plan for evangelism, our master's plan for evangelism, to reach the world, was far different than maybe what you and I would choose. And then the 12 that he did choose... It didn't like he went through Jerusalem and went, all right, let me get the all-stars. Where's the LeBron James? Okay, I need somebody. Where's Steph Curry? That's who I need. I need a Steph Curry on my team. But then Shaq. Let's get like an old, we need a good center. Let's go get Shaq. We need to put together the perfect team so that then we can go and reach the world. No, the 12 that he chose were a lot like you and I. Probably a lot worse than you and I. I heard one pastor describing it this way. He said that the 12 that Jesus chose, not even in church, but in any industry, those aren't the 12 guys we're choosing. So if you own a trash company, you're like, I just don't know if they can cut it. 
I don't know if they have the back for it. These 12 people were not impressive. They were in some ways failures in their own right. But Jesus said, those are the 12 that I want. And then through slow, intentional growth, Jesus then multiplied his ministry. He has the same kind of heart what Paul is writing to Titus and Timothy. Find a few faithful men, pour into them, tell them to go do the same. Titus, raise up elders, appoint them then here in these churches, throughout these towns. And Jesus is giving us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like and how the kingdom of God works. And friends, we need to always be reminded of this because it's so countercultural, especially in America. In a, a capitalistic age in which we want everything as fast as we can get it, um, we, we literally have a whole genre of food called fast food. And when you're in fast food, not only do you get the food in the drive-thru, going in is too much of a pain. We need to drive through to get the food. But in the drive-thru lines, they have the signs that are like, hey, you need to eat within three minutes of getting your food, otherwise it won't be as good. And I'm like, how, how did we get here as a civilization? But nevertheless, here we are. Microwave, we want it quick, we want it fast. Again, every phone that comes out is a tenth of a second faster, and that's the great marketing ploy. What can you do with an extra tenth of a second in your day? Oh, I'm so excited what I can now do. Everything is faster, quicker, and immediate. And we have to remind ourselves the kingdom of God is not like that. Because if we are not careful, that will bleed into our view as a church and our view in our own spiritual lives. And we may be led into unhealthy church practices and just absolutely overwhelming and burdening expectations for ourselves. If we expect an immediate result in our Christian faith, personally, and we expect that next week, okay, I've, I've never made it through a reading plan. I've had a hard time getting through Genesis. But this year, I'm reading it all by March. This is the year. And we have these expectations that we will jump immediately and quickly. And if you step into that, when you fail, you then will feel like, well, what's wrong with me? I feel broken. I feel flawed. Rather than seeing the way in which the kingdom of God works is often slow, intentional, and incremental. It's not immediate. It's not quick results. The images that Jesus has used, the parables that Jesus uses. It's like gardening. It's like growing. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. And the growth is often imperceptible. You can't see it. But over time, it's huge. And Jesus is helping us see the way in which the kingdom of God works. Not only in our own life, but then also as a church. That as a church, God is not calling us to be uh, producing numbers. He's calling us to be faithful. We plant. We water. We work. But then we trust God with the growth. He grows it, not us. We can grow a crowd, but only He can build a church. And we trust Him to that. And we want to work within His economy. And so as we look at the way that Jesus lived, pattern after what Paul, or as Paul patterned after what Jesus did, he chose 12, spent three years pouring into them, and then he sent them out. Even amongst those 12, it seemed like he had three that he would often pull aside. Peter, James, and John, bring up to the Mount of Transfiguration and talking with them in some, some other ways. And even amongst those three, it seems like he had a unique relationship with John, the beloved disciple, that Jesus was pouring into these few men and then sending them out, showing us the kingdom of heaven is not like what we often expect. And one of Jesus' parables, when he describes the kingdom of heaven, he just compares it to a seed. 
But not just any seed, he chooses a particular seed. And in it, in Matthew 13, the seed that he chooses, he says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And now the thing about the mustard seed, Jesus chose that specifically, and he draws out a particular adjective about the mustard seed. And you know what he draws out about it? He said, it's a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. The mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's small. It's unimpressive. It's incremental. It's often overlooked. Often imperceptible. Usually always surprising. But the other thing he notes about the mustard seed is that when it's grown, it's taller than the garden plant and becomes a tree so the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. Over time, that small seed grows, but it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. Through planting, through watering, through pruning. And over time, that seed does become this huge tree, but it takes time often. That's what the kingdom of God is like. So when Jesus poured into 12 men, even from those 12, three, and even from those three, one, perhaps people looked at Jesus and were like, what kind of an impact are you having? Fast forward 2,000 years and the impact of the pouring into those 12 men, we now see his churches around the world. That mustard tree seed truly has grown into a tree that's taller than any of the garden plants. The kingdom of God is not flashy. It's often not impressive. It's often not newsworthy. Those are the things that we like, but that's not how it is. Now, listen, sometimes it is. I'm not saying God doesn't ever work like that. Sometimes he does. We just went through Exodus last year, right? And you have the Passover, the 10 plagues, God redeeming a whole country. That was awesome, and it was immediate. You look at David and Solomon's reigns whenever they were king over Israel. It was an incredible time to be there and live as God's people there in Israel. You look at Pentecost in Acts 2. God's Spirit comes down, fills His church, and thousands are added to the church daily. God's, Caleb, don't you remember those stories? Of course I do. I'm not saying God doesn't ever work like that. I'm saying He doesn't usually work like that. We are pulling out unique moments in redemptive history. Pentecost, the Exodus, David and Solomon's reigns. God can do that. But if we expect that, I think that we will either then try to manufacture that result on our own or be disappointed that we're not seeing it. The usual way in which the kingdom of God works is often imperceptible. It's usually incremental and it's pretty much always surprising. That's the kingdom of God. Now, even think about David. When David was chosen, maybe you're like, well, Caleb, David was the man. He wrote like all the Psalms. He was a musician. He was a warrior. He was a king. Like he, he was the man. He killed the giant. Like he's, it's David. God chose him. He was impressive. And I go, well, let's go back and remember when God chose him. When God chose him, there was a prophet that went to David's dad and said, hey, one of your sons is going to be the king. And you know what David's dad said? Okay, great, I'll get my sons. You told me to get my sons, I'll line them all up. David's dad didn't bring David because David's dad went, there's no way it's going to be him. David's own father didn't believe in him. He's the little runt in the family, right? The Jonathan Taylor Thomas of uh, Obed's family, Jesse's family. That's David. He's out in the field. Let me bring all my other sons because from them will be the king. 
Surely my eldest, my strongest, the the tallest, the one that's the most aware and keen, these are the ones that, that you want, Nathan. But Nathan goes, no, 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 no. Do you have another son? Because the king isn't here. And that's where we get in 1 Samuel. The beauty and the truth that God doesn't look on the outside. God looks on the inside. And this son that was overlooked, this son that was so unimpressive that his own father didn't think that he'd even be a candidate, that's the one that God chose. And the greatness in which God used David wasn't because of his strength, but in his humility. David was consistently running back to the Lord. And friends, the kingdom of God is usually incremental. It's often imperceptible, and it's pretty much always surprising. Even if you look at the way in which God chose the people of Israel, why did God choose Israel in the Old Testament? It wasn't like he was looking over the earth and going, okay, let me find the biggest, where's the strongest nation, the one that that I could really use to reach the world. Oh, Israel, they're awesome. No, we see Deuteronomy 7. Moses tells the people of Israel, how encouraging is this as a pastor? The Lord has his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous of all the peoples, you were actually the fewest of all the peoples. Very encouraging, Moses was, to the people. But he wanted them to see the truth that God didn't choose them because of their impressiveness to him. He actually chose them because they were unimpressive. They were the fewest of all the peoples. Then we see in verse 8, no, God loves you because he loves you. There's nothing in you that's drawing God's love to you. It's an overflow of who he is. And the freedom that that comes in a relationship with God, because then we are not always trying to impress him. But there's the freedom in his covenant faithful love that he loves me, not because of what I can offer to him or bring to the table, but he loves me because he loves me. And God chose Israel because they were the fewest of all the people. And the kingdom of God, what we see throughout the Bible, is that it is usually incremental. It's often imperceptible, and it's pretty much always surprising. It's kind of like a mustard seed. And so then we apply that then to the church and we see, okay, this is the way that Jesus lived. That makes more sense. We see Paul's instruction to young churches and young pastors. That makes sense. And so to bring it to us then, okay, let's continue in that pattern of Jesus. Continuing the instruction of Paul. And as a church then committing to want to see that happen. Raising up men over time. Sending out pastors and appointing pastors and elders in towns. Raising them up and sending them out. Over a year, two, three, four, five years may not feel like as much of an impact. But over 30, hopefully we look back and see what all the Lord has done. Now, a quick aside kind of from this whole message, but I just want to apply this to this principle. To, it, it applies in so many different ways. But as a young parent as well, we have a, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old. And life is busy. Life is full. Um, and it is often can feel like What impact am I making and what am I doing today? Is what I'm doing, these small, ordinary, mundane things actually making a difference? I'm changing the fourth diaper today. It's impressive what can happen in a young baby's body and here here we are yet again. (laughs) We're having conversations with our children. and, And there can get a point where I think as a parent you look at it and go, what am I doing? Day to day it just feels so mundane. But friends, when we step back and we see the way the kingdom of God is, and we see how countercultural it is. We see that over time, those small investments in imperceptible ways are the ways in which God works. That those investments that you're making as a parent, 
every conversation, every changed diaper, every bedtime routine, that those things add up over a span of 18 years. And then as you then send them out, trusting that those investment and every single one of those choices that God uses in ways that we could have never imagined, it brings then impact and significance to every single one of those moments. When we see, oh, this isn't to be impressive. We're not here to be immediate impacts. We know this is the way in which the kingdom of God is. And there may be no greater profession in the world that demonstrates that than parenting. And if we could bring over some of the realities of parenting even into church philosophy, it would be helpful. To just slow, intentional growth and then sending people out. This is the way in which the kingdom of God works. This is what Paul wrote. It's how Jesus lived. So if that's the case, then the question is, as a church, local church here at the Grove in 2023, how can we imitate them? What can we then do to see a commitment, to see pastors raised up and sent out, a commitment to slow, intentional growth over time, um, that kind of a long game? How can we imitate them? How can we then raise up pastors and send them out? And to answer that, there's three different ways um, that currently we have to want to see this happen. And as we do this, again, the importance of laying this out is that if you're here at our church or here for any amount of time, this is something that we're serious about, seeing leaders raised up. So talking specifically about pastors this morning, but also in the future, wanting to see community group leaders raised up, women raised up, um, seeing ministry happening here amongst our church and around the community. This is a huge part of who we are because we see the commands here in Scripture and again the pattern that Jesus lived. But here at the beginning, putting the focus uh, of what we're going to be doing here and raising up pastors, how can we do that at the Grove? And to do that, there's three different ways uh, that we're going to try to live this out here. Uh, the first is through our pastoral training cohort. Our pastoral training cohort. And I think, oh, there's slides up there. That's wonderful. Okay. Our pastoral training cohort. First, by raising up pastors. We want to raise up pastors for our church. All right. As Paul told Titus to set things right. Uh, this, uh, this effort, the pastoral training cohort, is exclusively internal focus. We, we want to be raising up pastors for our church. So men that express a desire for ministry... What mechanism do we have here to help raise them up? There may be people that would say, I would love to maybe learn or grow or prepare for ministry, but I don't have the space or the time or the money to go to seminary, to move my family. What can we do? Well, this is kind of our answer to that. We've been doing this now coming up on four years. Um, this program is uh, two years. It's not paid. Um, so it's meant for people that have families, people that have jobs. We meet every week uh, upstairs. Uh, walking through books that we're reading every month, reading books on different topics. So every month is a different topic related to pastoral ministry in the church. Reading two or three books a month, they're writing papers, we're discussing them, we're growing together over those two months, taking the summer off and December off. It's a two-year program. And so we're finishing up the second class of that. So the first one went through 2018 to 2020. Now the second class is finishing up 2019 to 2021. That's how math works. 2019 to 2021 and then 2021 to 2023. And we'll be starting up another one here this summer. So in the months coming up, if you have any interest in this, again, can apply, and we'll be taking uh, some men to begin this next, uh, next group through our pastoral training co cohort. It's a classroom model of learning, reading, discussing, growing together um, over those two years. So you've seen some of these men come up uh, on a Sunday morning. Um, 
that will lead different elements of our service uh, as they've gone through this. Joel, Richard, Leon, Derek, uh, Luke are currently a part of this as they get up and say, well, I'm part of the pastoral training cohort. That's what that is. And so that's one way in which we want to raise up elders and pastors for our church. Um, but secondly, we also want to raise up pastors for other churches. And to do that, we've started in this pastoral residency. So if you heard Peter Bamfy leading worship last week, you've heard him preach, he started last July as a pastoral resident. Our pastoral residencies are usually externally focused, an external focus, wanting to bring in men, raise them up, and then send them out. And there may be a situation in which there uh, is a job that we would need here, a ministry that we would need here, and there'd be a match, but it's usually going to be externally focused. Wanting to send pastors out to potentially plant churches, walk into existing churches, become associate pastors at other churches, but be able to bring them in. This is paid. There was an organization we got connected with. It's given us a grant for five years to help get this started. And after five years, then we as a church will take that on and continue to move it forward. As these residents will stay here for two to three years, it's more of an apprentice-style learning. As they're also reading with the pastoral training cohort, those books, they're also doing ministry, preaching, leading ministries. Peter will just follow me around to, to meetings, um, to counseling, to conflict meetings, to elder meetings, to membership uh, meetings, uh, being able to sit and watch, observe, ask questions, that hopefully then after those two to three years, there is then a greater learning that he would have as he steps then into the ministry that God has for him. And over those two to three years, being able to clarify that ministry, what it looks like. So it's more general in nature, a pastoral residency. Again, Peter started in July and will be here for two to three years. The other thing that we're going to be looking at this year is wanting to see church pastors raised up for church plants. Later this year, we'll be starting a church planting residency. A church planting residency which is going to be exclusively externally focused with an external focus, wanting to see men come in with a desire to want to plant a new church, spending 12 to 18 months here, and then being sent out to start new churches. Uh, this is paid. There are organizations that we've gotten connected with, the North American Mission Board and Acts 29, that are committed to planting churches, that are putting money behind residencies like this. And so all we have to do is supply the structure and bring in the man, and then it's going to be uh, externally funded, 12 to 18 months. And again, it's going to be more apprentice-style learning. And so that's the hope of this August is to be starting this church planting residency. And so that's why we want to take a Sunday to say, why would we be starting these residencies? We're a young church. What's the difference between a pastoral residency, a church planting residency, the pastoral training cohort? Why are we doing this? We're doing it because, again, we see the pattern of Jesus' life. We do it from reading the instruction that Paul has. And looking particularly at these residencies, that word we find it to be helpful to use in thinking about a medical residency. When you think about medical residencies, there are people who have gone to medical school, and after medical school, then they move into a teaching hospital where they're there in those hospitals. They're seeing patients, performing surgeries. And there'll be an attending physician that's there with them, watching them, giving them feedback. Uh, their watches, then surgeons are performing some of the surgeries, and they'll debrief with that surgeon afterwards. And it gives them a context both to begin to practice medicine as they continue to learn from someone who's been doing it as well. And that's really our hope for both of these, church planning residency and pastoral residencies, that men would come in and be given a space where maybe they're younger, but they can begin to step into ministry. Maybe it's not as polished. Um, Maybe it's not, you know, someone that's been doing this for decades. But as a church, if we can begin to grasp the desire to be a kind of teaching hospital as a church, that we can be a church where men can come in and begin to work out some of these things, 
as they're raised up and sent out, knowing that we're not dedicated just to how polished something can be, how professional something might be, but we want to be committed to this, to seeing pastors raised up and churches started and brought to health, that we can then show that grace. We can be excited when someone gets up, maybe right, after, right out of seminary, and they get up and they give a sermon, and you get through the end of it, and you're like, what did he just say? But you know you get to go and give him encouragement, be able to give him the space to begin to work this out. Because I can tell you, my first sermon was awful. When I got up, it was a, oh, I'll never forget, it was a summer camp at a youth retreat. I got up, I was ready to go. I've been spending my whole life ready to preach. I get up there, I'm preaching on the prodigal son. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. I get up there and man, the spirit starts moving. I can just feel, I'm, I'm going through, I don't need a clock. I need no clock because, I mean, the Spirit's working. So much so that about three quarters of the way through the message, I see my wife, Leah, in the back raising her hands. I'm like, that's right. That's right. That's how, that's how awesome this is. I'll keep going from that encouragement. So I keep going, sit down, satisfied. Look at Leah with a little smile and say, I can't wait. I can imagine the affirmation that's about to come. And she leans over. She said, Caleb... That was an hour and 17 minutes. Gratefully, I've learned since then. But the, there's the amen. There's the talking. There's the talking back from the congregation. But the way, let me just tell you, the way in which I learned was through doing it and through mistakes. And so as a church, if we can be a space that's safe for men to begin to work through ministry, to begin to work through things, to give feedback, to give encouragement, to be able to be raised up in a context like that and sent out. Friends, it's just incredible to think about what might happen over decades of a commitment like that. I remember one of the, one of the pastors had a huge influence on me that has lived this out for decades. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C. His name is Mark Dever. He's a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And he's always said, he tells his church a lot, he said, listen, what we want to do is we're going to bring in young lion cubs here. And young lion clubs are probably going to scratch the floors. And we need to expect that. But then, when they're grown up, if we've given them a place to be able to grow, we then have a lion that's dedicated for the rest of his life. So we should expect some scratch floors, but gratefully we're in an old gym and it doesn't, it doesn't show very much. We should expect some scratch floors as we want to commit ourselves to being a church like that. To raise up pastors, these residency programs, this pastoral training cohort, raising men up both for our church, other churches, and new churches. And so again, wanting to lay that out so that as a church we can hear that. We can see it, hopefully written by Paul. We can see it lived out by Jesus. And we can say, you know what, as a church, we're not going to be expecting the fast, immediate growth. Give us the success. Give us the numbers. What are the results? But we're saying, no, we're playing the long game in this. We know what the kingdom of God is like. Slow intentional multiplication usually incremental often imperceptible and it's pretty much always surprising and so that's our hope and how to imitate them and our hope is that in 30 years Lord willing we can look at a map and we can see red pins scattered around that map in Lake County around the state of Florida and friends around the world of pastors who are leading churches both new churches that they started and churches that they walked into Pastors who are leading those churches that have spent significant time here, being able to be grown by God's grace here in this church before being sent out. And for our hope, my hope is that then, at that 30 years, we wouldn't step back and go, man, look how much the grove has grown 
We are awesome. The hope is 30 years we can look and we go, look at how the kingdom has grown. And by his grace, we were given the opportunity to be a part of it. My friends, that's our hope. Is that we can be committed to that kind of a plan. That kind of a ministry. A ministry that looks kind of like a mustard seed. Maybe small. Maybe slow. But rather than trying to manufacture the growth, let's give our time and effort to what we are to give our time and effort to. To planting. To watering. Tilling the soil and pruning. But then we step back and we trust God with the growth. And we do the work that he's called us to do. And we entrust to him the work that he has promised to do. And may we proclaim him by reaching the nations, by reaching our neighbor, by planting new churches, and by raising up pastors. Would you pray with me?